Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. I am back from CrimeCon, and to say the event was incredible is an understatement. I met so many great people, including victims, survivors, advocates, and fans of true crime. The attendance at my booth was higher than I could have ever expected, and although running it solo for 20 plus hours was exhausting, I enjoyed every minute of it. I made some great connections and even better friendships. I look forward to many different opportunities in the near future. Talk about it for hours, but now that I've recovered from the lack of sleep and all the travel, it's time to get back into the episodes. Let's start with the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And you can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and I'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out on a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The city of Hudson, Wisconsin sits along the banks of the scenic St. Croix River. After arriving in the area in 1840, white settlers called the area Willow River for the abundance of willow trees in the lower sections of the town along the river. A few years later, a judge who had founded the larger city of River Falls renamed the growing town to Buena Vista, a reminder to him of the battle of the same name that he participated in during the Mexican War. Finally, in 1852, the first mayor of the town changed the name to Hudson because the dynamic bluffs and thick forests reminded him of his home state's well-known Hudson River. After three names in about a decade, this last one stuck and the picturesque riverside town on the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota is still known as Hudson to its roughly 15,000 residents. Despite being a major artery for the railroads and a crossing point over the large St. Croix River for both trains and eventually cars via a major cross-country interstate, the town of Hudson maintained its small-town population and feel for most of the 20th century. Between 1900 and 2000, the town only grew from 3,000 residents to just shy of 9,000. This small population kept the crime rate low and ensured that most people knew each other in the border community. Although the town is bisected by Interstate 94, a major east-west freeway that connects the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul to other major metropolitan areas like Milwaukee and Chicago, the majority of the major and violent crime seemed to bypass this small town. That all changed in 2002 when a double murder inside a funeral home brought attention to the small town. A beloved funeral director and his intern were shot to death in the middle of the day and the two-year investigation would eventually reveal an unexpected suspect and expose a web of lies that put the most twisting thriller movie to shame. This is the story of the double murder of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison. Winter in the upper Midwest is a combination of extreme cold and traffic accident-filled snowstorms. Many people enjoy the frigid weather by snowmobiling, skiing, and sledding down snow-covered hills, while others who work outside, such as construction workers, first responders, and a variety of other jobs, adapt to and tolerate the harsh conditions. 
those lucky enough to have an indoor job hunker down for the frozen days and enjoy the opportunity to welcome and warm visitors to their places of business. Like a movie scene from an old western, visitors to businesses in the frozen north spend the first minute or so upon arriving at a business removing their many layers to include a hat, gloves, scarf, coat, and in extreme cases, heavy boots and a snowmobile suit. On February 5, 2002, the medical examiner for St. Croix County, of which Hudson is the county seat, stopped in to visit his good friend and funeral director, Dan O'Connell. Marty Shankin had worked closely with Dan for many years as the two men were both employed in the business of death for the sparsely populated county. Marty had investigated many deaths over his career, but as he walked into the O'Connell funeral home that day to collect signatures on a death certificate, he unknowingly walked into the scene of a double murder. Inside the funeral home were the bullet-riddled bodies of Dan and his intern, James Ellison. Not knowing if the suspect was still in the funeral home or what the circumstances were for the murders, Marty backed out of the scene and called 911 to report the two bodies. We'll take a quick sidebar here. Whenever there are two bodies that are found, there's always a potential for the crime to be one of many different things. At first glance, somebody may just immediately assume that they're both murder victims, but Oftentimes, when there's two people that are killed, it could be something like a murder-suicide. could be something as crazy as a double shooting where both parties shot each other. Or it could be a case where both people are victims of a homicide and the suspect is still at large. And really, Marty's not going to be sticking around to try to determine this. And in reality, it's often the case that in a murder-suicide, the suspect of the murder-suicide, the person who kills the other person and takes their own life, their body can fall on top of the weapon, so it might not be obvious at first sight that this is a murder-suicide, because if it is a murder-suicide, then your suspect is now deceased. There's not a whole lot in terms of the investigation. Uh, You just want to determine that it is 100% murder-suicide before you close out the case. Same thing with the double shooting. If you find that both bodies contain bullets from two separate guns, these guns are found by both of your, I guess at that point, suspects that are inside the room. In a rare situation, you may call this then something like a double shooting. Uh, And it may be a case where one person is defending themselves, but they're still able to get shots off. Now, this is probably more common to see in something like a officer-involved shooting where suspect may open fire on the police officer the police officer is able to return fire and then unfortunately in that case both parties involved end up uh, dying that would be you know a situation where you would have a double shooting but what's going to happen the majority of the time uh, obviously if it's not a murder suicide it's it's going to be the case where both victims found inside the crime scene are going to be victims of homicide there isn't going, likely going to be a murder weapon left behind. Uh, the suspect usually takes that with them unless they're trying to stage the scene, which there's a few cases that we will cover down the road where people have staged scenes to make it look like murder-suicides. And at first glance, officers may believe they're dealing with a murder-suicide, but eventually they're going to figure out it's not. But in this case, it's going to be pretty clear early on both uh, victims are going to be, have been shot in the head with a single fatal gunshot, and as a result, the 
police are going to quickly determine that this is going to be a double homicide. And there was originally no solid timeline for the murders, so law enforcement had to respond as if the shooting was an active shooter and treat it as if the suspect was possibly still on scene. And it took 30 minutes to muster enough law enforcement officers from the county's tactical team to do a sweep of the building, after which it was declared secure. And investigators could enter and start investigating exactly what had happened to the two victims. And this is, again, because they don't know if the suspect is hanging out somewhere in this building. He could be hiding in a closet or she could be hiding in the, you know, the place as a basement. You're not going to send crime scene technicians or just let your guard down and start investigating this crime scene until you're 100% sure that the person who killed these two people are not still hanging out in the building. Because it could be a situation where the medical examiner walked in a minute after these murders occurred, that person heard this person walk in, which caused the suspect to hunker down somewhere inside this building. And the last thing, again, you want to do is introduce potential for more victims. So once the scene's clear, the suspect is not in the building, they're able to lock down that scene. It's going to be frozen, and this is going to allow crime scene technicians and investigators to begin trying to locate the evidence of the crime. And then they're going to start trying to locate any eye or ear witnesses in the area that may have heard the gunshots, may have seen somebody coming and going from the funeral home to kind of narrow down that, that time frame they're dealing with. And at this point, too, they're going to be able to eventually move the bodies, fail to locate any murder weapons, and this is going to further confirm their suspicions that this is a double homicide. And a timeline was established using the victim's phone records that indicated the murders occurred between 1.07 p.m., which is the last time either of the men made contact with anyone else, and 1.22 p.m., a time based on when Marty walked into the funeral home and discovered the victims. And 911 call was made at 1.40, so I don't know where they got the 1.22 time frame from. I don't know if Marty arrived at 1.22 and was sitting in his vehicle doing some paperwork or getting those death certificates ready to be signed and and he knows he didn't hear anything for 10-15 minutes before he walked into the building but everywhere I read is this 1.07 p.m. to 1.22 p.m. time frame that investigators were very certain that the murder occurred within that time frame. And this meant the killing occurred in broad daylight in a building in a busy part of a small town. Evidence from the crime scene indicated that Dan was the intended target for the homicide, as he was discovered at his desk in his chair with a single gunshot wound from a 9mm handgun to his head. James was found in the same room, also with a fatal gunshot wound to the head from a 9mm handgun, but he appeared to have been attempting to leave the room when he was killed. The positions of the body indicated that Dan had been shot first, while sitting at his desk, and did not appear to have expected to die. There was no defensive wounds and no obvious sign of a struggle, so he likely knew his killer and was not expecting the sudden attack that took his life. So again, even though there's not going to be a ton of physical evidence at the scene, oftentimes these crime scenes will tell the crime scene technicians or the investigators a lot of information uh, just based on the position of the bodies, based on just general observations. And I tie this back all the way to uh, episodes two and three, I believe, of, of True Blue Crime. We talked about the superbike murders. And in that case, it was determined they believed the suspect came into the rear of the 
a super bike shop and shot the mechanic first and then that drew the attention of the mother of the owner who came out into the hallway where she was shot and then the owners co-owners were shot as they were exiting the building of the parking lot so investigators in that case were able to say it doesn't make sense that two guys are fleeing out the front door if the suspect is coming in the front door uh, it doesn't make sense that the guy working on the motorcycles in the back he appeared as if he was shot while he was working on the motorcycle that he wouldn't have reacted had three other people been shot inside that building so it's going to be the same thing here where dan is at his office desk and it appears as if somebody he likely knew walked into the office and then suddenly and without warning or provocation drew a gun and shot dan in the head which would have then brought james in to figure out what was going on james sees dan has been shot as he's trying to leave the room he himself is then shot so usually killers especially if it's an intended target victim homicide the killer is going to go for their intended target first you don't want to risk shooting dan if your target is james and having james realize something's not right and bolt out of that funeral home at that point you've just committed a murder for basically no reason because the reason for committing the murder if it was killing james has now left the building so investigators are look at the scene and quickly realize dan is the intended target that is going to give them a little bit to work with but also at the same time not a lot as we'll eventually get into dan's background here and so as we often do we want to talk about the victims to both honor them and to see if anything from their lives could point towards a motive for the crimes we talk about in the past victimology is huge in homicides a lot of the times if somebody is going through a divorce if they're involved in some type of organized crime whatever it might be there may be a reason for that person to have been targeted for this crime so we're going to look into the background Dan O'Connell was born on February 23, 1962 in St. Paul, Minnesota, and graduated from Hudson High School in 1981. Just before graduation, he obtained his EMT license and started serving on the Hudson Ambulance Service, eventually training to become a paramedic. While working as a paramedic, he attended UW-River Falls and obtained a degree in mortuary science, and eventually graduated from the U of M with an advanced degree and a 4.0 GPA in 1992. He juggled emergency medicine and working for the family funeral home until 1996 when he decided to work full-time at O'Connell Funeral Homes, a business his family had run since 1926. Two years later, he got married, and together his wife and him welcomed two children into the world. Dan's 15 years with the local ambulance service and his time with his family business helped him become a pillar of the community. In addition to his careers in Hudson, he was also a volunteer for Rotary Club, Knights of Columbus, the YMCA, and the Boy Scouts. To say he was a hardworking and well-loved by the people of Hudson is an understatement. By all reports, his marriage and finances were without major issues, and his victimology left little for investigators to work with. The crime appeared to be one of either revenge, murder for hire, or someone sent to silence Dan, but investigators had no suspects at first, and despite a short timeline, a small town, and the ability to rule out most motives, the investigation was not going to be an easy one. And so, you know, you have a guy like Dan O'Connell, as I mentioned, pillar of the community. He's volunteered with the local emergency services, worked as a paramedic, 
His family's owned this funeral home at this point for over 70 years. So everybody in town is going to know him. Again, this is not a large town at this point. It's about eight, 9,000 people. And so short of discovering something, something that is unknown, and it does happen in these cases, even though on the surface, some of these people may seem to be pillars of the community. Some more research may find out that they were having an affair and having an affair with, say, a married woman, at which point the husband of that married woman finds out. It could be something like that. It's not going to be in this case, but I'm just saying sometimes even when they look at the surface level victimology, eventually cracks start to form and they find out there's more to this person as to why they would be an intended victim. But in, in this case, it's not going to happen. Everything they look into with Dan, he's an upstanding guy. There's no reason anybody can think of for why somebody would want to kill him. So with this thought process of, yes, Dan appeared to be the intended target, but we can't find any reason why anybody would want to kill him. They're also going to have to look into James as a potential motive for the murder. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, he didn't appear to be the intended target, but it could be a case where somebody hired a hitman and they went after the wrong person first. Could have been somebody who knew that James would come into the room and this somehow made it easier. Again, without a whole lot of information, without anything pointing to Dan having a reason to be killed, they're going to have to look into James as well. James Ellison was born on October 22nd, 1979 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was raised in rural Barron, Wisconsin and graduated from Barron High School in 1998. His educational path was very similar to that of his mentor, Dan O'Connell. James attended UW-River Falls and then the U of M, where he was pursuing a degree in mortuary science. He was just two months away from graduation when he was killed, and after his death, his parents established a scholarship in his name. His victimology showed even less risk, as James was unmarried, he was a college student, and was well-liked by everyone around him. So there's nothing in his current or past life that pointed to anyone wanting to murder him. So while investigators arrived at a dead end via the crime scene of victimology, they hoped that as time passed, talk around the small town would point towards a suspect. Meanwhile, investigators looked closer at the time frame for Dan on the day of the murders. They learned that on the morning of the murders, Dan drove from Hudson to Baldwin, Wisconsin to meet with someone about an insurance matter. He left Baldwin around 9.45 a.m. to travel back to Hudson to meet, quote, a guy. And that's how it was put in the research, is that he must have told this guy at this insurance meeting that he was going to go meet someone. And it was a little mysterious. It didn't seem like he was going to name drop the person he was going to meet. But that might just be because the insurance guy isn't going to know this guy. So if, if you're going to go meet somebody and you're already in a business meeting, I, I don't know that you're necessarily going to say, hey, I'm going to go meet Joe Smith later today. Like If this insurance guy doesn't know Joe Smith, you might just say, hey, I, I got to get out of here. I got to go meet a guy. Again, nothing seemed sinister about it. It was just something that he mentioned to this guy that he was having the insurance meeting with, is that he had to get back to Hudson to meet a guy. And during the two years that followed the murders, investigators followed up on many different leads, but it would be a different crime altogether that broke the case wide open. And this is going to center around one of the local Catholic church priests named Father Erickson. In 1992, when Father Erickson was 18 years old, he was staying at a campground named Eagle River in Wisconsin. 
There he convinced a 14 or 15 year old boy to come to his trailer on the campground with them during the middle of the night and proceeded to give the boy alcohol and tell him about the devil and sin while massaging the boy's back. At some point he began sexually molesting the boy and offered to give him oral sex to which the boy declined. This incident was reported in 1994, but the investigating officers and prosecuting attorney declined to pursue charges. They believed that the victim was sexually confused and that made him an unreliable witness and felt the jury might not believe the incident occurred the way it was reported. They went as far as to say that because Ryan Erickson, eventually Father Erickson, was attending seminary at the time, he should be given the benefit of the doubt. And remember, we're talking the early 1990s, early to mid-1990s. Unfortunately, this is still a time when things such as being homosexual was something to be kept in the shadows, something especially in a, a conservative area such as this part of Wisconsin. It's not something that's going to be comfortable to be talked about. And as wrong as that is, whenever I'm researching cases from prior to really the 2010 era, there's a lot of issues anytime that something homosexual, transgender, anything like that comes up, or especially with law enforcement and prosecution. And in this case, again, it's going to come through. You've got a an adult male that gives alcohol to and then sexually molests a teenage boy. And I know there's only three years of difference, four years of difference between the two of them. It's not as if it's a 40-year-old guy, but still, this 14 or 15-year-old boy is going to be traumatized by this event. And instead of seeking any type of justice, it's, it's clear that he holds on to this for about two years and finally reports it. He's looking for either help or justice in some form, and he's basically told because he's sexually confused, there's not going to be any prosecution for his case. So again, I, I would hope that in 2023 that case would be handled differently, but as it is right now, you know, we, when we look back on these early 90s and before, we see a lot of this kind of stuff. And the diocese that oversaw Ryan Erickson during his time at seminary received word of the investigation and removed Ryan from anything to do with youth activities and ordered him to undergo a psychological evaluation. The diocese would later reveal the incident at the campground was not the only complaint that they were aware of and that Ryan had been accused of inappropriately touching a male cousin and a third incident involving him sitting on the bed of a sleeping seminary student. And I, I'm not going to get into a political slash religious slash whatever type of soapbox for this episode. This episode is not intended to speak about the atrocities of sexual molestation against children at the hands of priests or really any religious institution. But we are going to see a pattern here starting already in the 90s with how the church is handling the situation. And it is a lot of, it's going to be a lot of sweeping under the rug. It's going to be a lot of moving this Father Erickson around anytime he starts to get himself into too much trouble. And this is going to be a time period in which the Catholic Church is also struggling to get young priests. So it's unfortunately something where they probably believe that some of the trouble that he's going to be caused, not, not ultimately the trouble in the end, and they don't know the full extent of it, but uh, some of the trouble he's going to cause doesn't rise to the level that they really are going to remove him from the church. 
despite what we're eventually going to figure out he is fully capable of. And while his latest psychological exam found he was prone to issues with alcohol, likely due to being raised by an alcoholic father, Ryan was cleared to continue with his seminary studies and cleared for his path to priesthood. His alcohol use would become a major issue during his time in seminary and his study abroad, but in 2000, Ryan was ordained as a Catholic priest. And it was said in the readings that Ryan's father was, he was a Vietnam War vet, and he must have had some serious PTSD after the Vietnam War and was an extreme alcoholic. So it's not to give Ryan Erickson any excuses here, because I don't believe that what he's going to do is excusable but i definitely can see where this is going to be a a cyclical pattern of violence what he experienced from his father growing up with the alcohol and likely the abuse is normalized by him and and he's going to continue this throughout his short life and father erickson was stationed at saint patrick's church in hudson wisconsin during the summer of 2000 and quickly garnered attention for his extremist approach to the catholic religion Father Erickson was said to be extremely conservative and would do parts of the Mass in Latin, was pro-gun and strongly anti-abortion, anti-homosexual, and anti-sexuality for anything other than procreation. And I was raised Catholic, and I know having attended Mass with various different priests that there are definitely religious leaders within the Catholic Church that fit on a scale of, of extreme to more relaxed. And from what I read, Father Erickson is going to be on the extreme of the extreme side in terms of his strict following of what he believes to be Catholic values in regards to abortion, homosexuality, uh, things such as masturbation. And while his behavior is off-putting to some, the more conserved Catholics in the community were said to love Father Erickson and his strict adherence to Catholic beliefs. He didn't shy away from telling people about his love for firearms, and one family even gifted him a 9mm handgun that he often wore under his religious attire. Some observers of his behavior were concerned when they noticed he avoided small children, a point of softness for many priests, and seemed to focus all of his attention on teenage boys. It was said that he took them fishing and would shoot the fish with his gun when the boys asked him to, and was more than once seen rubbing the backs of boys during group swims. His strange actions also drew the attention of the parish as he wrote a lot of emails to his superiors about sexual desire and his attempt to curb sexual desire amongst the teenage members of the parish. Eventually, Father Erickson's odd behaviors earned him a meeting with the local bishop, and it was said that Father Erickson attended this meeting armed with his 9mm handgun. While most of his bizarre behavior was done in a book forum, his criminal behavior was done behind closed doors. After roughly a year at the church, Father Erickson was put in charge of supervising community service for a 14-year-old boy. The victim ended up being invited to Father Erickson's private quarters, where he would be forced to drink beer and hard alcohol to the point of passing out. Over the course of two years, the molestation and sexual assaults on the boys continued under the predation of Father Erickson, while the victim slowly entered into a life of alcoholism and depression. It wasn't until the teen started attending university and while taking a course in psychology, he realized how he had been groomed and assaulted by Father Erickson. The victim reported the incident to the university police, who took a report and forwarded it to the Hudson Police Department. 
but initially the teen only alleged that Father Erickson had given him alcohol, which is a crime, but not a major one, so the report sat untouched from April of 2003 until April of 2004. During this time, Father Erickson had been transferred to another parish, and his drinking problems made him an unwelcome addition. Soon, information came to light that Father Erickson had been drinking with teenage boys at a local teen hangout. While the church was figuring out what to do with the troublesome clergyman, someone was taking a new look at the murders in Hudson. In early 2004, a detective took over the double homicide and noticed that Father Erickson's name had been brought up during the early parts of the investigation. The investigator noted that during the morning before the murders, after his meeting in Baldwin, Dan O'Connell had a strange conversation with a local woman. While traveling back to Hudson, Dan stopped at the local Walmart and ran into a woman named Mary Pagel. She was a local school bus driver and knew Dan well, and the two shared some coffee and talked. During their conversation, Dan asked Mary if she had ever seen a local priest named Ryan Erickson touch a child in an inappropriate way, to which Mary stated she had not. Dan then asked Mary if she had seen the priest with both boys and girls, to which Mary replied that the priest seemed to ignore the girls and focus his attention on young boys. Dan then told Mary that he had a meeting to talk with Father Erickson around noon that day, and Mary told him if the issue was regarding sexual abuse and children, he should meet with the police first. Dan told Mary that he felt he could handle the situation. Mary remembered the conversation well, not just because of the criminal implications, but because around 11.15 on the day of the murders, she witnessed Father Erickson leaving the church, and he was dressed in civilian clothes instead of any formal or informal religious attire. When the police interviewed Mary, she relayed her memories of that day and passed a polygraph in reference to the conversation she had with Dan and her observations of Father Erickson before noon. The investigator followed up with a teenage victim who reported the years of abuse, and in April of 2004, the case against Father Erickson was aired as part of a segment for America's Most Wanted. The net was closing in on Father Erickson, and the diocese shipped him off to yet another rural church in northern Wisconsin while they determined what to do with him. His already conservative views got even stronger, and the conservative Catholic community, unaware of his past, loved the young and impassioned priest. But behind closed doors, Father Erickson continued to drink and even rescued a dog. The poor animal became the brunt of his drunken anger, and as reported, he regularly abused the dog by kicking it and putting out his cigars on its ears. After almost a year of taking a new look at the investigation, detectives felt more and more certain that Father Erickson could be involved in the murders. Of all the suspects they had looked at, only Father Erickson had motive to silence Dan O'Connell, as Dan had told Mary Pagel that he was going to approach Father Erickson about underage sexual abuse allegations on the same day that Dan was murdered. Since the murders, it became clear that Father Erickson had several reported incidents that backed up what Dan O'Connell had suspected, and Father Erickson was known to carry a gun, specifically a 9mm handgun, which was the same caliber used to kill the victims. But because their case was circumstantial, they decided to drive up to northern Wisconsin and interview Father Erickson to see what else they could learn about their number one suspect. On November 11, 2004, two detectives made their way to Hurley, Wisconsin to meet with Father Erickson. He was the prime suspect in the sexual assaults against the teenage boy and highly suspected of being involved in the murders of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison. Father Erickson agreed to speak with the investigators and offered up his theory of what happened. 
He claimed that Dan O'Connell was involved in the mafia via the mortuary business and was likely killed by the mafia. And again, on a side note here, we're talking 2004, and I remember this time period because this is when I was serving overseas in Kosovo, and The Sopranos was a was a huge TV show at this time. I don't know if it was actively airing or if it was just that all the seasons had been released on DVDs, but I remember my squad and I watching marathons of The Sopranos while we were sitting in our, our room over in Kosovo. Whenever we kind of go back to this time period, there's, it seems to be people will mention The Sopranos or some type of a major TV show. Uh, oftentimes it'll be CSI or Bones or Dexter or something like that where they'll reference having committed a crime or not being responsible for a crime and using some type of a, an excuse they saw on the TV or in movies to explain why somebody might have been killed. And in a tactic favored by investigators, they asked Father Erickson how he thought the crime was carried out. Father Erickson recalled in vivid detail the positioning of the bodies, the order of the death, and the location and number of gunshot wounds. When confronted about what seemed like intimate knowledge of the scene, Father Erickson first claimed he read about the specifics in the newspaper. When the detectives revealed that some of the information he had was not released to the public, Father Erickson claimed he must have heard the information secondhand from a couple of people that had been at the scene. And so this is why whenever we talk about active investigations and what they call holdback information, some people don't like the fact that investigators hold back certain information. They want to know the specifics of a crime. They want to know what happened. And a lot of times these are armchair detectives or even members of the media that are looking for the, the gory details. And as frustrating as it may be that the police are, are keeping this close to the vest, there's a reason for it. And it's, it's in cases like this where eventually they're going to admit that they interviewed close to 2,000 people and nobody was able to tell them the position of the bodies, the location of the gunshot wounds. None of that was ever released. And so if somebody's able to tell them that, the, the old saying is they were either at the scene when the killing occurred or they're the killer. And, and this is going to cause Father Erickson to change the subject to guns. And he talked about his love of guns and admitted to owning a couple of 9mm handguns. And then in reference to the sexual assault allegations, the detectives noticed a globe that doubled as a liquor storage device, which was a key detail from their investigation into the sexual assaults. And while the detectives had some damning evidence from the interview, they needed to confirm with the people Father Erickson claimed to have heard the holdback information from. As a priest, he was subject to private information from people, so it was possible he could have heard details of the crime scene from someone that actually saw the bodies. So again, this is where in normal situations, I believe the detectives would 100% know that they had their suspect at this point, but because he's a priest, and he's actually a priest that really pushes people to go to confession, and psychologically there's probably reasons why he does that, but this is a small town community. A lot of the police officers and people in the town attended the church it was it was possible that somebody during confession may have released these details to father erickson so when he mentions these people he possibly heard it from the detectives need to do their job clear up the fact of whether or not he could have heard this because while they're 
100% sure he's involved in these sexual assault allegations at this point. They're you know in the 98% range that he's going to be the guy responsible for the murders, but they really have to clear this information. So since they would need to vet the details of his interview, the detectives told Father Erickson they would likely meet with him again on December 7th and then left, confident they had their suspect for the sexual assault and the double homicide. Meanwhile, Father Erickson realized he had divulged too much and started telling church staff that he couldn't go to prison and would rather take his own life than go to jail. But then he seemed to get quiet on the matter and waited out the month until his next interview. On December 7th, he again met with the detectives who had since their last interview confirmed that no one had spoken with Father Erickson about the crime scene and of the almost 2,000 interviews that have been conducted, no one had been able to describe the crime scene in the accurate detail that he had during their first interview. Father Erickson simply replied with he didn't know how he would have known that information. He was also presented with the evidence against him for the sexual assaults. He admitted to giving teenage boys alcohol, but denied ever sexually assaulting any of them. In a classic admit but not admit, he claimed to have laid next to a teenage boy once and told him it was okay to be sexually aroused, but was afraid that if he admitted to that, he would be removed from the priesthood. So this is something too that investigators see in a lot of quote unquote confessions, is people who are guilty, it's, it's difficult for them to hold in and not admit to their crimes. And if there's a lot of evidence against them for the crimes, they may try to admit to something that, while it's not criminal, it also doesn't look good, so they can kind of ease some of their guilt, I guess, and also try to paint a picture that what was being alleged happened was not nearly as bad as people are saying it was. It's different than saying, I never done anything wrong in regards to alcohol and young boys before. He's now saying he did something wrong, but it, it wasn't criminal. And so we'll see that often where people are willing to admit to 5%, 10% of what they actually did because they they know that the police aren't going to buy that it's 0%. They've never done anything wrong with all these allegations. And then Father Erickson made some mention of suicide, which concerned the detectives enough for them to offer him a ride to a mental health facility. He declined the request and said he would be fine and would take a polygraph to clear his name on December 14th. On December 13th, he called and stated he would not be taking the polygraph, and police found he had instead spent the day calling friends from the Hudson area and asking for an alibi for the date and time of the murders. Having established enough probable cause, detectives were able to get a signed search warrant for Father Erickson's residence and his electronics. The search warrant was served on December 16th. A quick look at his computer revealed he had written a last will and testament for himself, which prompted more fear of him committing suicide. The local deacon convinced Father Erickson to hand over his firearms, and after he willingly did so, he assured church leaders he was not suicidal and would see them on Christmas Eve Mass, and he was said to have been left in good spirits. The following day was a Friday, and he spent the day alone and then the evening in the company of two good friends who had made the drive up from Hudson to the rural community of Hurley, Wisconsin. The next day, which was a Saturday, Father Erickson held the 4 p.m. Mass and then went out to dinner with his friends, who said he was angry about the investigation but made no comments about suicide. The two friends, concerned for Father Erickson because of the weight of the investigation, continued to stay with the priest that weekend in the rectory. 
On Sunday morning around 7 a.m., the same friend saw Father Erickson getting ready for morning mass and said hello before going outside to clear snow off of his parked vehicle. When he looked back at the rectory, he saw what he thought were a pair of legs dangling in the backyard as if someone had hung him themselves. He got the attention of the rectory's maintenance man who assured the friend that it was likely just a mannequin because Father Erickson was a practical joker. But when the two of them went inside to look for Father Erickson to tell him to stop his joke, he was nowhere to be found. They ran out to the site of the hanging and found Father Erickson lifeless. Running back inside, they found three suicide notes on the table. Father Erickson had committed an act he had told everyone was a moral sin and had escaped any earthly justice for his crimes. In the aftermath of his death, police looked closer at his computer and located a hidden file with pornographic images of young men and boys. Father Erickson admitted to giving into lust in his suicide letters, but denied his involvement in the murders to the point that most believed he was trying to convince people too much and it only served to cast further suspicion on him. And this is something we often see with people who are guilty of something and are trying to convince somebody. I went to a training once and the trainer was adept at picking up on deception, both written statements and verbal statements. And the saying that I left the training with that has stuck with me is that people telling the truth will just tell you, liars will try to convince you. And so when you ask somebody about their involvement in something, if they didn't have involvement in something, it's usually very simple of, I didn't do that, I would never do that. Something along those lines. Or it couldn't have been me, I was in another country at the time. Whatever it might be, it's just... It's real quick, it's one or two sentences, it's just the facts. They don't have to convince themselves and they don't feel like they need to convince you because it's the truth. Whereas somebody who's telling a lie has to convince themselves of the lie and then has to convince somebody else. So when somebody starts to go down a complete and utter tangent of these are all the reasons why he didn't kill somebody or wants to claim that he didn't kill somebody and he's going on for paragraphs about it, Again, trying to convince other people of his innocence. It's not 100%, but it's usually the case where somebody who's trying to convince you of something is lying because they themselves don't even believe it and they feel like they need to put just a ton of stuff. And, and none of the stuff that he said was even really that truth or fact-based. It was just denials and unsupported accusations. So again... If you're ever talking to somebody and they give you this two-paragraph explanation for you know, why they're late or, or why something didn't happen or whatever it might be, there's probably some deception going on there. Whereas if, if you ask somebody why they're late and they just said, oh, I hit traffic on the way into work and that's it and it's short and simple and convincing, it's probably the case. But if they, oh, you know, I was doing this and that and, and, and this and that and then I had to go do this and then... The, you know this happened to me and, and three minutes later you they're finally done talking about a simple question of why you're late or something like that that's that's kind of what was going on here and it's also said that during his many suicide letters he spent all of his time talking about how he was a victim in life and no one understood him but he took no time to apologize for his behavior or take any responsibility for his actions so again it was very self-centered writing in these suicide letters it wasn't a chance for him to apologize for the things he did to 
give answers to any anybody who he harmed or anything along those lines. It was very much the woe is me, everything has worked against me in life, and this is the reason I have to kill myself. And one person, which was the church deacon, came forward after Father Erickson's suicide and told police that Father Erickson had confessed committing the double homicide and was fearful of going to jail for the rest of his life. And I think this was after their initial interview in November. Uh, he came up to this deacon and basically just said, they think I committed the murders and that's it, I did it, and I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life. Something along those lines, but he, this deacon definitely felt he was admitting to having committed the crimes to him. Uh, unfortunately, this, this deacon kept it until after Father Erickson committed suicide. And in October 2005, a John Doe hearing was held to determine if the double homicide could be closed after the suicide of the strongest suspect. A John Doe hearing involves a judge and no jury and is a legal proceeding to determine if there's enough evidence to consider someone guilty of a crime and that not necessarily needs to be used to convict the person uh, in the hearing. And, and so I was a little confused it sounds like in the state of Wisconsin, this has been around forever. Um, these John Doe hearings can be used in these circumstances where somebody can't be held in trial because in this case they're dead, but you want some type of a legal answer out there. Is this person responsible for this crime? It sounds like you can also do this if you're a suspect in a crime. And I don't know why you would do this, but I guess the judge can review the case against you and then determine some type of legal ruling and and again it, it was kind of confusing it seems to be an older law something from well before modern courts and modern investigations so maybe it was something from back in the day before we had organized police forces where somebody felt like they were being harassed by the police on a case or, or something but it seemed to be in most cases now it's used at these circumstances where a fam in this case it was brought by one of the families before the judge saying can you just look at all the evidence in this case and determine was Father Erickson responsible. And the case was presented to the judge and while there was no direct evidence to link Father Erickson to the crime, several factors were considered. First and foremost was his knowledge of the crime scene. Second was his motivate to mot Second was his motive to silence Dan O'Connell due to the sexual assault allegations. And third was his lack of alibi and several eyewitnesses testifying to seeing someone who looked like him driving a car like his in the area of the funeral home before the murders. Father Erickson was supposed to be at the rectory or church around 2 p.m. that day. So when news reached the church of the double homicide, staff looked for Father Erickson to send him to the scene, which is a common practice with critical incidents. But he was nowhere to be found and there were unconfirmed reports of him arriving at the funeral home around 2.30, but these were not corroborated, and other reports have him visiting a nearby monastery around 2.30, a visit he had never made before and was not scheduled. And according to some, he told the nuns at the monastery about the double murder before he could have ever known about it. So whenever there was a critical incident, uh, suicide, murder, fatal accident, something along those lines. Uh, law enforcement, most major police departments have chaplains that work with the police department, different denominations, different religions, and they're on call for providing some type of 
immediate counseling to the family, some type of guidance, either religious or just personal. And it sounds as if that was what was supposed to happen here, as Father Erickson was supposed to be the one that was rounded up and sent to this double homicide. And he was supposed to be at the church or rectory that day. And so when word comes in, hey, uh, Dan O'Connell has been shot and killed, and so has James Ellison. We're going to need a, a priest over to the funeral home. Uh, and they went, the staff went to find Father Erickson. He couldn't be found. So his location just after the shooting is unknown. And then he either was at the funeral home somehow without anybody notifying him of the incident, or if that story isn't true, he was at this monastery talking about a double homicide that he wouldn't have known about uh, unless he was the one that committed it. And he also exhibited extremely strange behavior after the murders, including meeting with Dan's widow the night of the murders, but only saying a quick prayer and being very distant and unsympathetic. And this is, apparently he was a crier. He was somebody who liked to cry on command. He would cry during mass, during certain emotional parts of masses, to the point that some other members of the clergy and some worshipers would talk to him after masses telling him he needed to stop crying so much and and he did so he definitely seemed like somebody who could turn on emotions when he wanted to or at least fake them and here he is and and I, we hadn't talked about it yet but he was actually pretty close with dan o'connell they would ride to funerals together where father erickson was going to perform the funeral mass at the cemetery and with dan being the mortician he would often they would often ride together to and from these funerals they would ride to and from families houses together uh, to discuss funeral plans so these are two people that knew each other very well so for him to show up at a good friend's house as the priest and just give a quick prayer and be distant and unemotional and unsympathetic with the widow Again, a lot of people saw that as you know, behavior of somebody who was acting very differently and likely because he was the one who actually killed Dan O'Connell. And after reviewing all the evidence, the judge ruled that he found Father Ryan Erickson was the most likely suspect for the murders, even stating on a scale of 1 to 10, the case was a 10 in terms of evidence against the now-deceased suspect. While friends and associates of Father Erickson refused to accept that he was responsible for the murders, the Hudson Police Department considers the case closed and the person responsible for the heinous crimes is dead at his own hand. At the end of the day, two people who are well-liked and had bright futures were killed because of the tortured belief structure of the hypocritical man of the cloth. Dan O'Connell died because he was trying to protect young boys from a predator, and while this was would unknowingly cost him his life, it's likely that his sacrifice and that of James Ellison saved many young boys from becoming a victim of this monster. But that is the story of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.